How much does it matter if Christians live together before marriage? It's going to be three, maybe four weeks. The title of this particular teaching this morning, Why People Cohabit Before Marriage, and Are These Reasons Viable? I think you noticed when I prayed sitting on the steps, this idea of of the way we think as Christians and how quickly the lines blur between the motivations and desires and plans in the secular mind and the Christian mind. I've said it in my Christian ed class, and I shouldn't do this. I don't have time to do this. Don, what are you doing? This is the world's system in three steps. The ultimate authority, the ultimate authority are feelings. That's the ultimate authority. If I feel a certain way, then to be true to myself, that governs my life. The ultimate authority are feelings. The ultimate, the ultimate goal is happiness. And the ultimate sin are absolute value statements. If you remember those three things, the ultimate authority feelings. The ultimate goal is happiness. The ultimate enemy are absolute value statements. That is our culture. Christians who wouldn't dream of robbing a bank or watching pornography more and more line up with that system. Feelings are the ultimate authority. Happiness is the ultimate goal. I, I, Pastor Don, I can't, I can't get no satisfaction that way. See? An absolute value statement is the ultimate sin. Why people cohabit before marriage and are these reasons viable? And I admit, I admit right off the bat, there's a certain, albeit mistaken, logic to the reasons I frequently hear from many, many, many professing Christians as to why they are sure it's simply prudent to have a trial period of living together before committing to a permanent marriage relationship. One of these mornings, I'm going to read to you from Christian authors, pastors, ministers, books, advocating that Christians do this. And in a certain sense, they're just extrapolating the same reasoning we apply in all sorts of other big decisions. Here's a for instance. About eight years ago, it's hard for me to believe that time goes that fast. About eight years ago, I bought a new car. Though it was the previous year's model, it was brand new. Probably the nicest car I've ever purchased. You've seen it, you've coveted it probably, that beautiful Hyundai Elantra. 
At the time, it was $27,500, the most I had ever, ever spent on a car in my life. I'm still driving it. When I was settling on choosing between two or three cars for purchase, I went in and I looked at the car and I actually took it out for a drive. I wanted to see exactly what it would be like to drive this car. There are certain experiences that you can't just get from reading the brochure. I wanted to do what's commonly called a test drive. I mean, how would you react if you went in to test drive your potential car purchase and the salesperson said, well, sure, I'll let you take the car out for a drive, but not until you've given me the full purchase price and paid for it. You can't test drive the car until you are irreversibly committed to the car. Would you buy it? You'd probably say, well, the reason I want the test drive is so I can see if I really want to make the commitment of owning that car. You'd say, I'm not in a position to buy that car until I try it out first. And nobody thinks there's anything unreasonable in making that request. You shouldn't be expected to make the commitment to purchase until after you've at least had a chance to test drive it. Makes sense. Unfortunately, a vow-binding marriage isn't like a car or even a shirt on a store hanger that you take to the change room. By nature, there's just no way to take a vow-binding marriage off the hanger and try it on before purchasing. I mean, it's the biggest commitment in any life. And just by definition, the actual covenant of marriage can only be experienced after an irreversible commitment has been made. And for a lot of people, that doesn't feel safe anymore. It sounds like a kind of trap where you can't see what the choice is really like until you can no longer get out of it. This is what has made cohabitation without marriage the fastest growing type of relationship in the country. It seems to offer the test drive that marriage vows don't allow. In Canada, the rate of cohabiting relationships is increasing four times faster than married couples. In the U.S., 70% of the population will cohabit before entering marriage. And a very high percentage will marry someone other than the one they are cohabiting with. Not surprisingly, as the church so typically seems to follow culture's lead, the same argument is widely accepted even among people who think they're disciples of Jesus Christ. I've read in supposedly Christian books that cohabitation may actually be a good way to save Christian marriages from the soaring divorce rates. And if marriages are eventually saved from divorce, then God must be pleased with the cohabiting arrangement. That makes sense. 
And so, this study. Does this kind of reasoning stand up? Is it true, first of all, to God's revealed will in Scripture? We're not doing that today. We'll do that farther down the road. But just a flat-out question, does cohabitation deliver what people seem to think it delivers? That's where I want to start today. For those of you who know me and have come here for years, you're going to be surprised at the next sentence that I utter. I'm actually not looking at this from a biblical perspective today. I don't have a quote from a Christian in this sermon. I'm absolutely convinced that we're not being given the straight bill of goods. I am convinced over and over again that when God's ways are turned upside down, it's not just some religious rule book that's violated, but God's created order gets all messed up. Our physical lives in this real world will never thrive violating God's will. So by nature, this opening message will be different from my typical teaching pattern for sure. Most of the data I want to pull forward today isn't from Christian sources. Almost none of the statistics is made from inside the community of faith. Everybody understand what I'm doing here? All that is deliberate. What I hope we all see when we leave this service this morning is is the fact that the reliability of God's revelation isn't dependent on religious doctrine. That God's revealed will is open truth. It will stand up to any honest examination. What we're talking about here isn't true just because people of faith choose to abide by it. That's the reason for the different texture of this teaching. So please be patient with me. It's also worth noting that this is a relatively easy topic to study statistically. It has the two ingredients for strongly verifiable study data. There are an abundance of subjects to study. That's important. And two, this information has been collected over a very long period of time. Lots of subjects to study and a long time span in which to study it. There are multiplied millions of cohabiting couples to study, and the data has been collected since the early 60s. Since 1960, the number of cohabiting couples has increased 15-fold. All that to say the information collected is highly accurate, highly reliable, has nothing to do with being manipulated by a pastor-Christian perspective. That's not what we're doing here. The important point is this. By any measuring stick... Cohabitation does not work if you're thinking of protecting marriage. Overall, by any measuring standard, there are no positive features in the statistical data. This is not a religious conviction. It's an unbiased, universally observed fact supported by virtually all survey and all data. That's what I want to look at for just a little bit this morning. Point number, say it with me. 
Yeah, point number one. Cohabiting relationships disintegrate four times more often than even the highest divorce rates. So please remember, when we talk about a cohabiting relationship, we're not talking about couples who have merely slept together. We're talking about couples who have moved in together, who have made the commitment of perhaps sharing a home together without marriage vows, sharing expenses. Those relationships, on the conservative side of the statistics, break up four to one more often than even the highest divorce rates recorded anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Now, what makes this sad fact so sad is another amazing statistic. The Pew Research Center in the U.S. has discovered that millennials have a stronger desire for marriage than any previous generation alive. This is not my words. Because they've come out of homes that in record numbers have been shattered by divorce. And generations tend to be shaped by what they feel they have missed out on or been denied. So on the whole, millennials crave secure marriages. They fear bad marriages. They desperately fear bad marriages. They feel they must get it right when they marry, they feel the pressure is on. They simply can't afford to make the same mistakes as many of their parents. And cohabiting seems to offer the best chance of learning the ropes of the marriage relationships while still allowing the chance of an easy exit if things don't work out. Remember, the plain data reveals that the vast majority of couples cohabiting desire marriage and see their present cohabitation as a stepping stone to marriage. The Institute of Social Research at the University of Michigan, no Christians, notes that a full 75% of cohabiting couples are aiming at eventual marriage. And 62% feel living together before marriage is the best way to avoid that eventual marriage ending in divorce. But they're wrong. Statistically, they're wrong. Even if what they want is good, the way they're seeking it is disastrous. Remember, marriage requires things cohabitation does not. That's obvious. Not rocket science. I mean... Marriage demands something that at least one of the cohabiting partners wants to avoid. That's why cohabiting exists. And the easy out of cohabitation is the poorest training ground for the life-till-death commitment of marriage. You can't learn commitment in an uncommitted relationship. Everybody hear that? In fact, the statistics prove the drift-in, opt-out pattern of cohabitation consistently paves the way for the same carryover of drift-in and opt-out in the following marriage if it happens. In other words, cohabitation 
trains couples to leave marriages when they get challenging. Please think about this. It's what Professor Scott Stanley of the University of Denver calls, quote, sliding, the sliding versus deciding syndrome. His research, not Christian research, reports that cohabitors who do eventually marry most often just slide into marriage because of the, I'll explain this in a minute, relational inertia created by cohabiting. Now take note of that phrase, relational inertia. It's a big term. Simply put, he means cohabitation makes it more difficult to get out of a bad cohabiting relationship than out of a bad dating relationship. That's because the cohabiting couple has already tied up some of the loose ends of the dating relationship just by the act of living together, sharing rent, financial commitments, relational roles, etc. This is really important. Couples in a terrible relationship are less likely to end the relationship of cohabiting than that of dating. Dating, you just quit. In other words, cohabitation sets couples up for a bad marriage relationship in a way that typical dating doesn't. So this first point is basic to everything else. Does the experience of cohabitation teach couples things that will make them better spouses in marriage? And I'm telling you, there's no statistical evidence that it does so. None. We have an absolute answer to that question. The evidence is consistent across all studies, all surveys, and it's pretty conclusive. I'm, I, I don't want to bore you with quotes. Sociologists at the University of Chicago and Michigan state emphatically that, quote, the expectation of a positive relationship between cohabitation and marital, marital stability has been shattered, shattered, by studies conducted in several Western countries, including Canada, Sweden, New Zealand, the United States, and others. So this is the universal conclusion of their study. In their study called The Relationship Between Cohabitation and Divorce. This isn't at a Bible school, okay? The Relationship Between Cohabitation and Divorce. Sociologists William Axon and Arlen Thornton conclude that people with cohabitation experience prior to marriage, get this, are 50 to 80% more likely to divorce than couples who have never cohabited. Did you get that? Should I read that again? These are sociologists. People with cohabitation experience prior to marriage are 50 to 80% more likely to divorce than couples who have never cohabited. Like, that's a significant statement. Do you see what he means? Like, quite shockingly, leaving out, just for a minute, leaving out all the godly principles and teaching about marriage and the help that you can get, leave it all aside. If you're sitting here and you want to increase the chances of your marriage lasting by 50 to 80%, all you have to do is don't do something. <laughs> don't cohabit. You don't have to do anything else to increase the chances of your marriage lasting between 50 and 80% more. 
just don't cohabit before marriage. I don't think the church is, is getting that. I have one other thought under this first point. And it's sadly missed in the day of political correctness. And it's this, that cohabitation is also the most sexist of all social relationships. I'm going to talk about this more next Sunday morning. I'm just touching on it here. I simply mean that the man and the woman, in the vast majority of cohabiting relationships, don't enter on the same footing. Studies show, not Christian studies, that approximately 75% of women enter a cohabiting relationship considering it as a doorway to eventual marriage. 75% of women enter a cohabiting relationship thinking, well, this is the first step to marriage. Roughly 20% of men think of it that way. Let me ask you something. I'm sorry. Who do you think holds the cards in that relationship? Who do you think has the upper hand? Oh, you might think a woman would simply say, fine, it's best I find out now if my man isn't interested in marriage. I can easily get out of this and find out one who is. But don't forget, don't forget the previous point about relational inertia created by cohabiting. The plain fact is most don't get out. They imagine they will change their partner, their cohabiting partner, they'll change him over time. Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll come to love me more. And they stay with the same man, all the while destroying their chance for happy marriage and family. Point number two. Cohabiting relationships consistently manifest a much higher rate of physical violence and abuse. Again, statistics prove men with rings on their finger are safer to live with. True, there's still nothing but shame. I get it. Nothing but shame to be felt for the violence exhibited in marriage relationships. It's all sinful and deserving the sternish, sternest punishment in this life and the next. The biblical call is for men to lay down their lives for their wives. But think about this. The Journal of Family Violence reports the most common relationship between batterers and victims. Quote, the most frequently cited relationship was cohabitation at nearly 50% more than couples married. 50% more violence in a cohabiting relationship than marriage. Lastly, this. Michael D. Newcomb, P.M. Bentler, came to this conclusion. Get the title of this study. Here's just the title. Assessment of personality and demographic aspects of cohabitation and marital success. That's the title of the study. 
Here's what they say, quote, cohabitors experienced significantly more difficulty in their relationships with adultery, alcohol, drugs, and independence than couples who had not cohabited. Apparently, still quoting, this makes marriage preceded by cohabitation more prone to problems often associated with other deviant lifestyles. For example, the use of drugs and alcohol, more permissive sexual relationships, and an abhorrence of dependence than marriage not preceded by cohabitation. Okay, enough. Point number three. Love will keep us together. Let's all sing. How cohabitation paves the way for sexual activity outside the cohabiting relationship. Are you still with me? I know it's a different kind of, like, really, are you with me? Okay. According to studies at the University of California, quote, the odds of a recent infidelity were more than twice as high for cohabitors than married persons. And here's the important point, quote, this held true even when researchers controlled for issues such as increasingly permissive values about extramarital sexuality. Given the direction the whole society is going, they said, we took that into account. The commitment mechanisms of marriage were the most obvious reason for the difference. More infidelity in marriages preceded by cohabiting relationships. More infidelity. Now remember, this is not some Christian radio program's conclusion. These are totally, totally secular observations. It's the same conclusion of the American National Sex Survey. This has got your attention. Which found, quote, live-in boyfriends are more than four times more likely than husbands to cheat in the last 12 months. And live-in girlfriends more than eight times more likely to cheat than wives in traditional marriages. The survey concluded that there is a relational clarity to marriage that affects not only both people in the marriage relationships, but also potential outside partners. A man or a woman with a wedding ring is more off limits than someone without. Four. We're almost done. The verdict is in. Everyone benefits. According to secular studies, everyone benefits when marriage is held in honor. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There'll be other teachings in this series where we'll deal with a lot of scriptures. But this is my wrap-up for today. 
God's revealed will for the beauty of marriage isn't just, how can I say it? It isn't just a flexing of divine muscle. God isn't just saying, do this my way or else. God's will is always a revelation of God's grace. God's will is always a revelation of his grace if we just see it that way. It's an expression of what works best and what fulfills most. Even for society at large, there's a common grace that preserves family life and decency. But for followers of Christ, there's more than that. There's something beautiful in that word, that one. undefiled. It it speaks of some kind of freshness, doesn't it? Purity. It speaks of something unpolluted. I mean, why would anyone prefer drinking contaminated water when you could have pure, clean water? Why? God's will is always a manifestation of his grace. Here's the flip side. Sin never just brings guilt. It always diminishes life. Ultimately, the lie of temptation. It ultimately dilutes joy, even though that's hard to believe at first. There is something, don't misread me. There is something even more important to keep green and pure than the environment. There's something even more important to keep green and pure than the environment. Marriage. Keep it pure and clean. I, I I don't do very many weddings anymore. Staff does most of the weddings in the church. Probably Pastor Chris does most of them. <laughs> Sexual intercourse is not the covenant sign of love. I'm thinking of young women in this church. If you're, if you're going with some guy who's saying to you, you know, if you love me, you'll let me. I'm sorry. Ditch him. Just ditch him. Sexual intercourse is the covenant sign of marriage, not the covenant sign of love. Now, one day, maybe you're here, young man, young woman, and the bride's coming down the aisle. And you got your groom standing here. Get this mental picture. Do you really want to come down the aisle? I'm talking to young women. Do you really want to come down the aisle and see your future husband standing here and behind him all the women with whom he did not keep covenant? Is that what you want? Like, is that the best you want for your marriage? 
by any measuring stick, cohabitation does not work. By God's measuring stick, I read the text, he will judge. What does that mean? Like, how lightly do we read those words? He says, I'm going to judge people who take this lightly. I'm going to judge them. And it's not going to be, mm -mm -mm -mm. like, you can sacrifice your soul, is what I'm saying. And you ought to be thankful that you go to a church where whatever flaws a pastor has, you ought to be thankful you go to a church that at least will tell you that. <laughs> Don't mess this up. And everyone said, 